Welcome to another episode of Crashing the War Party. My co-host Daniel Larson and I are so grateful for your company each and every week on our journey into the Washington abyss. And if you are coming to us for the first time, strap in because it's a bumpy ride through all of the horse pucky and hot air in the heart of the Washington bubble. We'll be talking to Lieutenant Colonel Danny Davis about his whistleblowing on Afghanistan, how he feels about the withdrawal and the military buildup against China over Taiwan. But first, let's talk about something truly sordid, and that's Mohammed bin Salman, otherwise known as MBS, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. In a 60 Minutes interview broadcast on Sunday night, Former Saudi official Saeed al-Jabri accused this crown prince of using a private quote-unquote tiger squad to carry out extrajudicial kidnapping and killings all over the world. This would include the murder and dismemberment of journalist Shamal Khashoggi at the Turkish embassy in 2018 and a failed attempt to get at al-Jabri himself right after that brutal murder. He has been living in exile in Canada, he said, since before MBS was made crown prince in 2017. He fears for his life and says that his two children now in their 20s, early 20s, uh, are currently imprisoned in Saudi Arabia. The siblings were arrested in 2020 and sent to jail on trumped up charges of money laundering and trying to escape the kingdom when they were under prohibitive travel restrictions, according to Human Rights Watch. There are, they are among a number of Al-Jabri's family who has, have been detained because of him, he says, as retribution for the lawsuit he filed in the wake of his assassination attempt. The government has been harassing them with his family members from the time the father left the country in 2017. So, Dan, clearly this is not helping MBS's whitewashing attempts, which this month included buying the Newcastle Football Club. What kind of fallout do you think that this 60-minute segment will have or should have on the kingdom? I think it will have some impact because uh, this is someone who was very involved at a high level uh, in the Saudi government. He was the the second in command in Saudi intelligence uh, under Mohammed bin Nayef, who was the the crown prince whom uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, ended up uh, deposing uh, and, and replacing and, and who he then uh, you know, sort of locked away in, on house arrest. Uh, so, so the fact that Al-Jabri is a known quantity in Washington, that he has contacts, that he has uh, possible allies, including people at the CIA who, who have worked with him uh, and, and who think highly of him, I, I think will give his words uh, a lot more weight uh, in Congress and, in, uh, and maybe in the White House. Uh, then, if it were just uh, what, you know, one of the many other uh, Saudi dissidents that have been targeted by this government, um, and, I, and I think we we see we saw some of that with the reaction to Khashoggi's murder as well, uh, because this was somebody who was well known uh, to the Washington elite, especially in uh, in the media, and so when when he was murdered. Uh, it made a much larger splash uh, than uh, many of the, the Saudi government's uh, many, many other abuses. And so I think Al-Jabri's comments are going to, to reverberate. Uh, one of the things that's, I think, quite striking about the fact that he's even making public remarks is that he is, he is basically a spy. He's not someone who's inclined to go public with any of this stuff, uh, but he feels compelled that he has to do this in order to put pressure on the government to get his kids out. Uh, and, and of course, using 
people's relatives as bargaining chips uh, is, is a common practice, especially under this uh, administ- under this leadership uh, in Saudi Arabia. And yeah. of course, it was a practice before then, before Mohammed bin Salman as well. And so uh, it's 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 clear that they're uh, using uh, these tactics to try to to keep Al Jabri quiet. And, and so I, I think he, he feels the need to escalate and and uh, and call their bluff in a sense. Uh, one detail that I thought was really remarkable that he shared in the interview is that he said that Mohammed bin Salman threatened the former king Abdullah with assassination, and that he was you know but he was somehow allowed to survive this threat. Um, so I, I'm not sure how much we can believe that story. It it did it struck me as as sort of a, a fantastical. Story a little bit, a little odd, a little off. But, it, but it, but it also, in in one sense, it rings true because this is somebody who is extremely reckless, who is uh, prone to using violence to get what he wants, and so in, in that way, it, it actually it seems like it was true to his character. I, I don't know if this conversation actually took place. Um, right. Uh, Jabri says it's on, on a, a video recording somewhere that there's a copy of it and that. You know, Supposedly, it could be released uh, as leverage, but uh, but you know it shows the the extent to which uh, Mohammed bin Salman has has antagonized the old power structure in, in Saudi Arabia um, through his recklessness and through his uh, destructive habits. And so, you know, I think it it is a an important witness to the to the character of the guy who's in charge now. Yeah, I mean, and keep in mind, this is a guy, the crown prince, who is deploying a tiger squad to exact these judicial killings, we, which we know are true because Jamal Khashoggi was lured into the Turkish embassy, uh, killed and immediately dismembered by a team of people who obviously had been trained for this mission. And uh, my colleague Eli Clifton has written about the plane that's been that was paid for by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund that uh, jetted these guys to Turkey and back, actually had crossed uh, U.S. airspace and, and been used uh, to, to to ferry around uh, Saudi elites in the past. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it might be hard to believe this uh, King Salman assassination threat, but I mean. Who, who knows how far this guy uh, will go or has gone? I mean, he's he's thrown um, Saudi elites uh, that he feels that are uh, rivals to his uh, ruling in, in jail, uh, in you know uh, detention in these high end hotels. Um, he's out. You know, he is basically um, the stakes are high, and he has has um, you know protected his rule, his his power pretty effectively, I believe, but how far will he go? And we, we've just, like you said, we've just had a window into, into that uh, sociopathic nature of, of MBS. And, and what I find interesting is uh, that Saudi Arabia has spent millions, if not billions of dollars over the years, you know, lobbying in Washington, uh, hiring US firms to do its bidding, to do its whitewashing, uh, and I, I would say that because the media has been enthralled, maybe even paid off in some regards, the think tanks as well, that all of his uh, misdeeds have uh, been relatively un- un- gone by unnoticed or have been tamped down. Uh, it wasn't until the murder of Jamal Khashoggi 
uh, that I feel that the Washington establishment, including the mainstream media, had been taking steps back uh, from uh, doing its bidding and um, protecting the reputation of Saudi Arabia. And so, uh, unfortunately, it took, you know, the murder of this prominent journalist uh, to, to sort of, um, you know, uh, break up or uh, cast this harsh light on Saudi Arabia for the first time here in Washington. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, their attempts subsequently to get back into the good graces of Washington will fail. And I think this interview speaks to that and um, just provides more of a brief against MBS. Um, I know that, that Saudi Arabia, as well as the UAE, has are still pouring tons of money into lobbying and um, doing these publicity tours in the U.S., heartland and donating to schools and other um, institutions. And, um, you know, what we're seeing here is that there's this real underlying diabolical thing going on. And um, the, the Saudi Arabia has, just like the UAE, has engaged in these extrajudicial uh, kidnappings, threatening of people's families. Um, and um, I'm just hoping that the Biden administration, which really holds the whip hand here because of the aid and the relationship, the military uh, relationship, uh, hopefully will follow through on some of its pledges to rethink that relationship. And so far, I haven't seen a lot out of the Biden administration in that regard. Uh, no, unfortunately, we haven't. Um, and indeed, we've seen they, they've gone ahead with some new uh, contracts with the Saudi government. Uh, one for the, the maintenance and upkeep of their helicopter fleet. Uh, of course, that helicopter fleet can certainly be used uh, as part of the war in Yemen. Uh, we saw Jake Sullivan go and, and meet with Mohammed bin Salman, uh, not on the anniversary of Khashoggi's murder, but but the, on the same week, yeah. uh, which I thought, you know, was... Poor taste. In, in, in poor taste, poor, poor timing, uh, and, and really, I think, reflected the extent to which the, the Biden administration is trying to get back to business as usual. Uh, which I, you know, I think we both agree is a mistake. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to mention about the interview that I thought was interesting is that it's, the interview came out on a program, 60 Minutes, which just a few years ago was one of the most uh, egregious uh, in giving Mohammed bin Salman uh, the, the red carpet treatment and giving him such a softball interview to let him uh, spout his propaganda to a national audience. And so it's, it's striking to see the change in just the last three, three and a half years uh, between that uh, really uh, embarrassing uh, sort of adulation for the man and, and the much harsher coverage that he's getting now. And so that, you know, that is encouraging that, that even at a place that was willing to give him that kind of uh, favorable coverage before, uh, they're, they're now looking more uh, carefully at him and they're, they're, they're not liking what they're seeing. So that, that's some sign of progress, I think. Yeah, I, I, I entirely agree with that. And I, you know what? After 9-11 and the fact that the majority of the 9-11 hijackers were Saudi Arabian was never lost on the American people. I think right. the American people uh, have, have been under no um, illusions about Saudi Arabia for the last 20 years. 
But as I mentioned before, all of the lobbying, all of the whitewashing, all of the money donated to think tanks and academia uh, has bought the uh, Saudi kingdom a lot of goodwill and a lot of time uh, and cover. And I think that uh, the rest of, like you mentioned, the, the mainstream media after Jamal Khashoggi, because they considered him one of his own, one of their own. Um, after what happened, you know, that spell was broken. But I, I think the rest of America is like, what are we doing with these people? I mean, is it just about the oil? We don't need their oil anymore. And uh, the special relationship, what is it? Why, why do we need to have tens of thousands of troops over there and in the region? Uh, why are we selling them our best weapons? Um, I think most Americans are questioning this. And um, I, they don't need to be brought along. I think it's it's the elites in this country that need to be brought along, the politicians. And they just can't, you know, they just can't break off this, this strange enabling relationship. And, you know, let's face it, a lot of it is, you know, the defense industry and the, the, the millions that they put in the lobbying, they want to sell these weapons. They, you know, this is this is gold to them. And so you're you're not only contesting with the the ideological or the political uh, firmament behind this special relationship, but also the lobbying from the defense industry that just sees ka-ching, ka-ching every time, you know, uh, these these two parties get together. That's right. And and another thing that's driving it, I think, and uh, this actually came through a little bit in the broadcast on the 60 Minutes show, is is this fixation on Iran as uh, oh, the, yeah. the regional foe. Uh, because right at, right at the end of the broadcast, they, they snuck in this little bit of propaganda, or that's what I called it anyway, uh, where they said, Saudi oil may not matter as much as it used to, or as it once did, but countering Iran uh, is still very important, or something to that effect. And I thought, that I mean, where, where is that even coming from? How is that even relevant to what they're covering? But they, but they stuck it in there to make sure that everybody understood that they weren't, they weren't really that anti-Saudi. They, you know, they, they're still against Iran, and that's what really matters. So don't, don't beat up on the Saudis too much. Right? And so it, it was, that was a, a sort of a, a letdown there at the end of the program where they're, they're trying to justify continuing to back this government that really uh, is, is nothing but a liability and a, an embarrassment for the United States. excited uh, to welcome a friend and uh, I would I would even call you a colleague Daniel because um, we've we've worked along the same lines and with the same people for many years now many uh, years yeah yes Daniel Davis who is a senior fellow for defense priorities and a former lieutenant colonel in the US Army who deployed into combat zones four times. He is the author of The 11th Hour in 2020 America. Welcome, Danny, to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I think the first time that you and I met was shortly after you had come out with that searing article. And, and forgive me, because I, I no longer know exactly where it was published, but you came out with a searing article about the generals in Afghanistan and how they were lying to us about conditions on the ground. And this is, was this in 2012? Yeah, February 2012. It came out in the Armed Forces Journal and then the New York Times simultaneously, actually. 
Yeah, that's right. And, you know, at the time, it just blew the doors off. And, you know, people listening now are probably quite used to hearing how we were lied to, the generals were lying, government officials were lying, you know, Afghanistan papers, Craig Whitlock, Washington Post. But this was 2012. And this was a time when people were pretty much taking what the general said on face value. And I'm saying people, I mean, members of Congress, the mainstream media, nobody on this call, on this podcast, Um, But it really planted a flag and got people talking. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about um, why you did that and how are you feeling today now that the U.S. military has withdrawn from Afghanistan and there does seem to be some reflection on why we were there so long if if the war policy was, in essence, a failure? Yeah. Yeah, they, they, at the time, you're right. I mean, every, everybody was still kind of in the afterglow of, of Petraeus' alleged victory in the uh, Iraq surge. Uh, and they just expected him to reprise the same thing. And in fact, I mean, they just mentally just believed that that happened no matter any kind of examination. Uh, but as I discovered from my fourth combat deployment on the ground in Afghanistan, underneath the Petraeus surge, I realized it was just all fiction. And, and the further I went, the longer during that one year deployment, uh, the more angry I got because I saw that it wasn't just that they were lying, which by itself should be enough uh, to warrant the red flags and, and some serious uh, responses and reactions. It was costing American lives, pointless American lives. I mean, just throwing lives away left and right, being killed, maimed, uh, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, all those. I'm talking thousands of those uh, were happening, all in support of a lie. And, you know, they, when it came out, you know, of course, it got some media attention right at the beginning, New York Times and all that. And, uh, you know, several news cover- casts covered it. But the problem is, of course, then they went right to the generals. They put a microphone in their face and say, hey, what do y'all think about this? And they're saying, well, you know, that was one guy's opinion. Well, you know, we understand that. But we have a broader comprehensive and we're still very confident in our assessment of that we're saying that things are overall getting better. We're on the right path, the right azimuth and all that other hogwash, as it turned out. Uh, of course, I knew it at the time. And anyone who had been on the ground in Afghanistan really knew that. They knew the reality. But people back here didn't know. All they know is generals don't lie. They always tell the truth. I mean, in fact, they have a reputation for being forthright and, uh, you know, and honest in all that they say. That's just kind of the assumption uh, without ever revealing it. So when all these generals said that, the most famous being General Scaparotti, who specifically asked at a Pentagon press briefing right after the article came out, uh, they just said, okay, and then they went on and no one ever challenged it again. And yeah, I guess to answer the second part of your question, of course, you know, with the Afghan papers in, in uh, 2019 and all the things that we saw now where the lies could no longer be even propped up a little bit because of the absolute collapse of everything that happened. I'm still a little bit disappointed, actually a lot disappointed, because all these same guys, you know, McChrystal, Petraeus, Allen, uh, so many others, all the ones who lied all the time who knew the truth and were telling everybody it wasn't this way, that we were getting better. I mean, every single year, they're still the ones that get all the airtime. They still get the Washington Post. They still get the Wall Street Journal. They get you know covered and saturated on the media. H.R. McMaster was another one of those who was leading a lot of that stuff, uh, and specifically in the 
the uh, helping the Afghan government not be corrupt and telling everybody that there was success all during the time he was there. And we know now for a fact that none of it was ever accurate. Uh, yet these guys, they get book deals. They, they get, you know, these big positions. Uh, General Allen is the head of Brookings Institute, you know, a very prestigious and respectable place. And you just have to be disappointed that even when all of the lies and fictions finally just came collapsing down on the utter disaster that happened in August, um, yet these guys, no, no one has to date been held accountable in the, in the war process just continues on without accountability and uh, without success. You know, interesting, Danny, that you bring that up because um, I, I'm very disappointed as well in the coverage of these generals and the uh, allowance uh, to them, this platform to talk about how they feel regarding the war and their experiences. And I feel like the mainstream media has continued to kowtow to these generals um, and, 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 and be, you know, awestruck, starstruck. Um, and, you know, they're on the speed dial, MSNBC, CNN, like you mentioned. But I do get a sense that among the rank and file and also just regular Americans, they're not buying it. And so you see, you know, on Twitter, you see, you know, in broader social media and articles, you know, conversations that I've had, um, that there is this broad uh, disgust with the uh, military elite and mostly because of the betrayal that um, veterans and members service members are feeling now, uh, like you said, they knew things were going down the toilet a long time ago and that we were in an unwinnable war. And they were looking to these generals for leadership and they weren't getting none. And now they see them continuing to be um, revered and lionized in the media. And I think it's creating more and more of a disconnect between regular Americans and these, this in this case, the elite military. And I can't see that going anywhere good because until the military starts responding in ways where it's actually reforming itself or listening to the people, I think that this, this, this disconnect is just going to bring us to bad places, maybe another war, for example. Right. That's exactly my concern. Uh, and and uh, the disconnect, I think, is something that's it's it's one of those kind of deals like, you know, the, the classic straw that broke the camel's back. Well, you know, the four or five straws before that it didn't look like anything had changed, but the pressure was building. And even though, you know, some of the polls have supported exactly what you're saying about what the rank and file and, and just the American public think, they definitely are not buying that things were working and that the war on terror was winning and that all this kind of stuff. But you haven't seen that translate yet to any kind of consequence, I guess, like the, that uh, CNN special, I think that you were referring to where, uh, you know, all the I think seven or eight of the Afghan commanders were, you know, basically, like you said, kind of ask how you feel about it. And kind of just really to my dis discomfort was kind of focused on how they feel like almost like you should feel sad for these guys, Are you, okay? you know, in a couple of cases. <laughs> yeah. We, we're sorry that you feel this way, you know, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, damn, I'm still thinking about all those kids that I knew that got blown up and killed in Afghanistan and the thousands of others who were wounded, lost limbs and all this, the, the guys who came back messed up uh, from seeing all the death and destruction and the, and seeing the, the conflict between what the reality was and what their leaders were saying, you know, and so many have lost families, they've lost loved ones, 
you know, they're going to be struggling in some cases for PTSD the rest of their lives. And it's just mm-hmm. angering to me that those guys don't, no one seems to care about what they're feeling and what they have suffered and, and in many cases will continue to. And I frankly have very little sympathy for what the generals were suffering. Absolutely. And, and we, we have to be worried about uh, getting into another uh, war, another avoidable war, uh, uh, possibly uh, over Taiwan. And, and you've written about that many times in the last few weeks. So thanks uh, for coming on the show, by the way. Yeah, my um, pleasure, really. Thanks for having me. I'm really grateful to be here. I, yeah, I, and, and we're, yeah, we're pleased to talk to you. Um, and so you, you've written a lot about uh, the dangers of a, a going to war over Taiwan. Uh, and you argue that the U.S. should avoid that war at all costs. Uh, that's because even if the U.S. prevailed, it would come at too great a cost to us. Uh, as you say, the best that could be hoped for would be a, a Pyrrhic victory in which we are saddled with becoming the permanent defense force of Taiwan. What do you think is the driving the agitation for making an explicit guarantee to Taiwan when the potential cost is so high to the United States? Yeah, it, it's almost entirely arrogance and presumption. We're like, no, the Chinese aren't going to do what they want to do in their front yard. It's not even the backyard, by the way. It's literally right across their, their water. They can almost see it from their shore. The, and, and so we don't want China to win. We, we are, uh, many in the United States are, are very uh, threatened by the mere presence of China because they're no longer some backwater kind of uh, developing nation, but they're now a modern, technologically advanced country. I mean, they just are. And, and to deny that is to deny abject reality and to set yourself up for bad policies you know, not the least of which is this one here. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of it is, is I'm concerned because some generals and some of these pundits you've seen on TV and in, and in the print media uh, and in Congress, they want to be saying all over and over that, yes, we should give explicit guarantees. That's how you deter China. And nothing could be further from the case. Everything points to the opposite, being that that will entice them to, to even take strike. Now, I, I wrote in that uh, one of the pieces I wrote very recently was why should American troops be sent over to die for Taiwan uh, when the Taiwanese aren't even really standing up for themselves? And there's you know all kinds of the facts underneath that that export why Taiwan doesn't really think an attack is coming and they're not taking it seriously in large part because they see all this talk from Washington. They're going, cool, U.S. will take care of this like they fight other people's battles and all this. So we don't really need to worry about it because they've got our back. And we need to say, no, we don't because... Uh, you know, I, I did write that about, you know, the best you'll be hopeful would be a Pyrrhic victory, but I, I'm like 99 and a half percent sure that we wouldn't even get a Pyrrhic victory. Almost certainly we would lose this war. And, and I'll tell you why. Ten years ago or actually 11 years ago, uh, as far as I know, I'm the first one that said the U.S. will lose the war in Afghanistan if we don't make these changes. In 2010, October 2010, I wrote that in the Armed Forces Journal. You know, at the time it was just laughed off. But I said, look, there's very fundamental practical reasons why every single one of those things proved out to be true when it collapsed in August. All the reasons I cited 12 years earlier, 11 years earlier, proved to be the case here. In like manner, I'm telling you, for very practical, fundamental military reasons, we can't win a war against China over Taiwan. We simply can't. We don't have forces. We don't have the logistic capability. We're not prepared for it. And all of those things on the other side are set up. And then you have a weak opponent in Taiwan that just there's no way you can win. To try to do that, to go to Taiwan's defense in the event China attacks, is to absolutely throw away American lives, to to lose our capability to deter China from 
attacking elsewhere against U.S. interests, uh, and it will kill thousands of Americans and cost probably in the hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, just alone on that. Uh, and it's all avoidable, and it's all so clear when you sit down and just look unemotionally at the balance of forces and you know the, the importance that each side places to the situation. Everything says China would win. We simply can't do it because it would just be catastrophic for us, but I fear that we're going to. Well, in, in connection with that, uh, we, we heard the president last week uh, wrongly say that the U.S. has a commitment to defend Taiwan if it is attacked. Uh, as, as we all know, that's, that is not the case. That is not the current policy. We have no obligation to do that. Uh, how big of a mistake do you think that statement was? And are you concerned that it, it does actually portend a change in policy in the future? I, I don't know that it pretends to change in policy. What I, I just fear that it was just kind of a casual comment that the president made, which, of course, was very much taken to heart in, in Beijing, uh, because they don't care what he walked it back later. or Some of his people walked it back later and said, oh, well, he was just saying it's the same you know, situation we've had since 1979, et cetera. And, it, and that's not. I mean, helping them defend themselves is very different than we would defend Taiwan. So whatever phraseology you want to come up with, uh, the fact is that China heard it, Taiwan heard it, and you know, and you'll hear what you want to hear. So the people in Taiwan can hear, yeah, that's what he really meant. He's going to come to our aid. So actually, we're we're good. You know, we don't have to worry about that. No matter what he walked it back later, the only thing that's going to be remembered by both China and Taiwan is that he said he would defend us. And of course, there's plenty in Washington that encouraged that because that's exactly what they want him to do. And here's what the problem is, is in the event that China does move militarily, which I expect to come at some point after the uh, the Beijing Olympics in February, this coming February. Uh, I don't know if it'll come right after, but it could be, you know, within a year even. It could be within months uh, if the conditions warrant it. In the event that that happens, there will be such an emotional move in the United States to to defend you know, the weak, the attacked victim, et cetera. And all these people who've already been on the 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 record as saying we should defend them will immediately say, ah, just like I told you, we have to move now because it's going to be 1938 again. It's going to be, uh, you know, Munich moment. And, uh, they'll conquer the world if we don't do this. We have to move now. That's the argument that they're going to use, which is absurd. If you, again, look at the actual fundamentals of 1938 and today, there's hardly any uh, correlations other than the fact that somebody's attacking. But the risk is nowhere near for us what it was in 1938. But that's what's going to happen. And I fear that the emotion will carry the day and that a rational analysis won't. Well, and unfortunately, that often seems to be the way it works in our foreign policy debates. Uh, one thing that we, I think we, we could see uh, is that China hawks are going to, to latch on to this Biden comment about a commitment to Taiwan, and they'll, they'll try to box him in and trying yeah. to make it into a sort of red line scenario uh, like they did with Obama in Syria. Uh, and and so they'll end up trying to use his own words against him, and he'll he'll feel as though he he can't uh, back down. Uh, how uh, how much of a danger do you think that is? Oh, it's it's, it's an extreme danger, and and the uh, the the corollary to that is is not believing what the Chinese say. We too many people want to say, oh well, China. I know they're saying a lot of this about you know they'll use force and all this, but that's you know just bluster because they would never go against our military that's why we should give the explicit guarantee so they won't do that that is just you don't the only people who can say that are people who know nothing about china and who know nothing about the dynamics that are going on behind the scenes and under the 
under the radar for decades because China has never said anything besides they would use military power. And they said that they don't want to use military power. They want to have peaceful reunification, et cetera. Uh, but they have said, but if it gets to the point to where it'll never happen, then we'll move at that point. And China has not been one of those countries that just has bluster and just says stuff they don't mean. They, they mean what they say to the most part. And when you see the physical actions backing up this statement with this development of the military capacity to take Taiwan, then you realize that what they're saying now in these days is that they are absolutely prepared. There's, you see their military preparing and taking actions that facilitate the training for an, an invasion force like this. And you certainly see the capacity militarily with this you know, new hypersonic missile, with these aircraft that they've been flying in, with helicopters that they've been preparing for, with landing operations that have been going on in islands near Taiwan. Everything in the world points to them getting ready for a military strike. And people ignore that to, their, uh, to our peril. That's interesting, Danny, because, you know, uh, oftentimes people in the restraint camp um, – tend to see China as not being aggressive or as aggressive as the media folks on the Hill want to say. But then it seems to me that you are not, um, you are not um, negating their aggression. It's just that you are concerned about how we are going to respond to it. Is. Well, it, 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 it's two pieces. It's not just a general aggression. That's what a lot of the hawks are saying, that this is a, a, a Hitler-like aggression, that he's going to go on this global rampage or whatever. There's no evidence for that at all. As a matter of fact, there's evidence that they won't do that because, you know, this idea that if they get Taiwan, they're going to go on this global conquest or whatever, you know, and attack other countries. Yeah. I'm like, look, look at a map. And you can see that right now, Taiwan does nothing for all the countries China borders. If they wanted to do something with, with you know, like Laos or, or Vietnam or Cambodia or whatever, they could do it now or India, et cetera. They aren't going to because they don't want to. And Taiwan wouldn't help them with that. So they're not going to do it, first of all. But all the aggression and everything is solely focused on Taiwan. It's not on the Spratleys. It's not on some of these other islands that they have disputes with neighbors. They're not talking about that. They're not moving towards you know, militarily conquering these other areas, you know, the Philippines, etc. This is all about Taiwan because they are deadly serious that that's, uh, you know, almost an intractable part of their DNA on the Chinese side. So they mean what they say on that, mm -hmm. but it's important to distinguish that it does not mean a general attack that they have, you know, against some global desire like a lot of people are trying to make them. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. Exactly. I really appreciate this. I run out of time, but I was wondering if you could tell our listeners right now where they can find all of your, your great writing and your book. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I, uh, I published everything on my Twitter feed, which is at Daniel L. Davis and the number one. Uh, so on the Twitter there, I put everything on there. Be happy for anybody to go perusing around. And your book? 11th hour. Uh, yeah, 11th hour in 2020 America, how American foreign policy got jacked up and how the next administration can fix it. Uh, it's on Amazon, uh, but you can also find it on the Twitter feed. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thanks a lot. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. 
Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>